side of our bulletin. This is Luke 9, 1 through 9. So prepare your hearts and minds for the reading of God's word. Luke 9, 1 through 9. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all about that was happening, all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. The word of the Lord. Amen. Some of you are familiar with the name Chelsea Sullenberger, also known as Sully. Sully was the airline captain responsible for the miracle known as the miracle on the Hudson. That was January 19, uh, excuse me, 2009, when a flight, uh, a flight took off from Hudson, New York, and struck a gaggle of geese, instantly shutting down both engines. And Sully was faced with a choice. Do I have enough altitude and speed to bring the uh, plane back around and land it? Or do I have to ditch? Sully made apparently the right decision. Because he decided to ditch in the Hudson River. But of course this is a very dangerous thing to do. Because if you don't bring the plane in just right so that it slides over the water, it will tip and literally... Uh, you can imagine in your head what could occur. Well, Sully was a pretty cool customer. In fact, one of the reasons why Sully was able to pull off this miracle on the Hudson was the extensive flight training that he had. He was an Air Force pilot first, but was somewhat obsessed about flying. He had his flight instructor rating, single and multi-engine. He was an accomplished glider pilot and glider instructor. He worked with uh, airline safety uh, about uh, promoting safety techniques, new safety techniques in flying. Indeed, he had even submitted a paper to NASA dealing uh, with aeronautics. And so lo and behold, Sully brought that plane in like a glider and slid it right across the water. And I don't know if you see, have seen that beautiful picture of the plane a uh, hundred passengers in, all of them safe, with the plane literally floating on the water with everybody on the wings. Quite amazing. But you maybe don't know the story of someone equally, in fact, even more amazing perhaps. His name is Doug White. Doug White is not an accomplished flyer. He's a Louisiana pharmacist. And Doug and his family were in a King Air uh, airplane in April 2009 when the pilot had a heart attack and died. Uh, King Air is a, I wish I had a picture of it, it's not a commercial airline, but it's a multi-engine, multi-passenger 
airplane. And so, and lo and behold, White sensed that something was wrong, went into the cockpit, and he realized that the pilot had died. He picked up the radio. I've got to declare an emergency, he said. My pilot is deceased, and I need help. I need to get this thing on the ground. I'm flying a King Air. Luckily, White had had three months of flight lessons, but he had flown sparingly and only a small single-engine plane. The control tower said, disengage the autopilot. We're going to have you hand-fly the plane. To which White said, you find me the longest, widest runway you can. And there was a process of working back and forth as they were explaining to White what to do. He was trying to find it, finding it, and executing it. Grim, the airport control tower person, said she remembered White's steady demeanor through the whole incident. He was like the coolest cucumber, she said. There were long moments of silence when White wondered, had they given up on me? Had they shut off the communication? He got nervous. But lo and behold, a bond formed. And through the efforts of the airline of the control tower, he was able to bring the plane down. At the reunion that they had together, the White family was shocked to learn during the reunion that they were given only a 5% chance of surviving. White said, if you're going to die, at least die trying not to. This passage is a, a passage about power and authority. It's about delegation and ability. Jesus has chosen these 12 people and he's called them to follow him. And they've seen unbelievable miracles. And then Jesus turns to them and he says, everything that you've seen me doing... I'm going to send you out and you're going to do too. I'm going to give you power and authority, my power and authority. And I'm going to send you away and you're going to preach the gospel and people are going to be transformed. I wonder what they were feeling like when they got that message. I mean, think a little bit about these people and the revolutionary journey they had been on. Ordinary people. Louisiana pharmacists, if you will. Peter, James, and John, the fishermen who were business partners, remember hearing Jesus as he spoke. As he spoke in a way that no one ever spoke. And his message, the power behind it, captivated them. And then there was that fateful day when he said to them, after uh, put out to Peter, put out on the lake, I want to sit in your boat and I want to preach. And Peter sat there listening as Jesus preached the message of the kingdom of God and then he spoke to them and he said, I want you and your partners to put out into the water and let down your nets. Master, please, you're the pharmacist, we're the fishermen. But Jesus told them and they did and they put down the nets and they were so full of fish that they began to strain and break and they pulled them up on the shore and Peter said, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. But Jesus said, don't be afraid. From now on, you are going to catch men. And they followed him. And then he went so far as appointing them apostles. Apostle means the sent ones, the twelve. But until then, there was no catching of fish. There was simply staring in disbelief, even doubting as Jesus did these things. They'd seen Jesus calm storms, 
raise people from the dead, cast out evil spirits. And then Jesus says that you will have power to cure disease and cast out spirits. I wonder how they felt. Was it fear? Was it excitement? What if Jesus came to you and said, this power and authority, I'm going to give it to you, so go and do what I've been doing. You know, the reason Jesus' ministry was so effective was because of two things, power and authority. You know, power equals the ability to do something. But authority equals the right to do something. Jesus had both. Remember John the Baptist wondering, going to, uh, sending people to Jesus to saying, are you really the one because I'm in prison here? And at that time, Jesus does all of these miracles. And he said, go and tell John what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised and the poor have the good news preached to them. Men of Israel, said Peter in Acts 2.22, hear these words. Jesus Christ, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. See, Jesus had the authority and so he had the power. Jesus, remember when he's preaching the gospel and the guys lower a friend in through uh, the roof. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's like, can he really do that? And Jesus said, which is harder to say to his legs, to say to him, get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say, get up and walk. His power manifested his authority. And his message of freedom and life, spiritual freedom and life and rebirth, was being shown through the physical works that he was doing. And so Jesus gives this authority to these 12 men. Now I have to ask the question, why did he do it? Well, it's clear there were 12 of them, right? They needed to get the message out, and so they needed to send them out. No, Jesus could have done that very easily himself, couldn't he? A far better job, in fact. So why did he choose 12 and give them this message? I can only think of one reason. Because in the heart of man, we were made to proclaim another. We were made to be messengers. Jesus is doing more than simply communicating the message. He's raising up messengers. And so he called the twelve together and gave them this proclamation. You know, our universe itself is a proclaiming universe, isn't it? Jesus, we see in Psalm 19.1 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard as it goes out into all the ends of the world. How about in Romans? His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
The universe was designed to proclaim. The falcon proclaims God as it soars through the sky. And we see the majesty. Who has not gotten close in a zoo to a beautiful creature such as a leopard or a lionfish and seen the intricacy? They were designed to proclaim a creator. We were designed to proclaim the message. Because we are the greatest of His works, are we not? Indeed, we are made in His image. Our very image is designed to be a proclamation of the one that we image. The power that God gave us as lords over creation was as a power to proclaim. But as the greatest of His works, we were given something that all of creation also was not given. We were given words to speak. Our image and our voice was given to proclaim the message that Jesus Christ is King, that God is over all. And we were also given the power to choose. Know that the Lord is God, says the psalmist. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. See, built into us as His greatest creation, as His greatest messenger, is the ability to choose not to proclaim. The lion or the eagle or the stars have no choice. But for us to be able to choose is to even magnify the message that God is King. And so from the beginning, all of creation, all of who we are and are meant to be, is built into this aspect of proclamation. Does it not make sense at the end of the New Testament that Jesus would say, go and make disciples of all nations? In the book of Acts, that you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth when you receive power from the Holy Spirit. We were designed to proclaim. We message, don't we? We message in a variety of ways. I don't know, does anyone still use instant messenger, by the way? We are communicating beings. But I want to suggest to you that there is a deeper communication that is going out, a transponder that is beeping, communicating who I worship, who I proclaim. And the question is, what is it or who is it? Really only two questions you need to decide in life. Who am I and whose am I? And you can't know one or the other without having those together. I went into the recesses of my son's uh, 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 room, which is looking fantastic, by the way, son. Well done. He rearranged it. Man, that kid is sharp. And there's a litany of instruments available there, and so I grabbed this one. So tell me about this one. It's busted. Okay, what's wrong with it? Well, the valve's stuck started saying stuff that I didn't understand. But surely, somebody as talented and as gifted as I, a close friend and pen pal of Chuck Mangione, should be able to kick this thing. Excuse me for one second. Why can't I play it? Because it's broken. Plus, I don't have the power, and I certainly don't have the authority. See, the problem, my friends, is we're all broken instruments designed to play a tune 
that we've forgotten how to play. In fact, that most of humanity doesn't even want to play. But Jesus came for us to proclaim a message. He's come to us wanting to change our hearts. And so as He gave the disciples power and authority, it is He who makes us an acceptable instrument of praise and proclamation so that fishermen can go out and change the world because people hear their message. You know, when you think about it, what right have we to proclaim this great king without the king giving us the authority to do so? Would my message not have any effectiveness if my life was entirely different than it? If my heart was not in it? And so the point I'm trying to make to you is that what Jesus is doing with the disciples is what He wants to do with you and me. He is making us into acceptable instruments to proclaim the message. You were made to be a messenger, my friends, but my question for you is this. What's your message? What's your message? When you walk into your office and you pick up your instruments, what are you proclaiming? Is it me, me, me? When you walk through the supermarket, when you go out into the halls, when you see friends, is it money, money, money? Comfort, comfort, comfort. I don't know what the message is. But Jesus said that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said, from now on, Christians, you will catch men. You and I were made to be messengers. And you will never experience the peace and power of what it means to be who you were meant to be until you proclaim the proper message. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up from the pit. And he set my feet upon a rock and he put a new song in my voice. A hymn of praise to our God. And many will see and hear. Well, this brings me to my second point. If we were made to be messengers, that can clearly mean that we were made for the message. I did not come to faith brand new out of the womb. I was physically born but I needed a spiritual rebirth. That message which Jesus put into the hearts of the apostles who put down on, with pen and paper into the scriptures is the message that I needed. We were made for the message and we are remade by the message. See, the issue is that we have a problem. How are we going to unbreak this instrument? to reform it, if you will, into the purpose that it was made to have. It has to be reborn and remade. And the instrument that God uses to do that is the message. Well, what is this message? Notice, Jesus says in verse 2, And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The kingdom of God is the proclamation 
The heel is the power to show it. If we expand this proclaim the kingdom of God, if we look at this parallel section, this command in the other synoptic gospels where Jesus sends out the twelve, these are other things that he says. He says, he sent them out and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Let's break these down. Number one, it must be proclaimed. Without the word going out, it cannot be heard. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is simply the place where God is the king. And so the scriptures say uh, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Or near, if you will. Or it is nearby. It has come. In the Greek, we don't have this tense, but it literally means something that has come and is to stay. In other words, it's not something that's passing by. It is something that has come and is at hand, here. So with the coming of Jesus comes the kingdom of God, the rule of God. And it's being manifested in the life of Jesus. And so the job of the message is to proclaim that this kingdom is here. It's at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Now let's talk more about come near. If the kingdom of God has come near, then it means that there must be another kingdom, right? There's a competing kingdom that is in place that must be overthrown because there is only one king for one kingdom. So this message is a message of redemption. That there is a kingdom that is going to be overthrown, a kingdom of the world, a kingdom of the evil one, a kingdom of darkness, and the new kingdom, the kingdom that has the God of light, the God of all creation, has come near. And He is overthrowing this other kingdom. And overthrowing, we see how He's doing that. Casting out demons, showing spiritual overthrow. Showing with physical health a spiritual life that he's bringing. And so, since the new kingdom has come, the command is to repent and believe the good news. Repent is quite simple. Since the new king has come, stop living for that king and start living for this one. Believe by faith that he has come and trust that it is good news. That He has come not to kill, but to redeem, to reconcile, to welcome. And as the message went out, the effects began to occur with the disciples. The message continues to reverberate as people are born again. A spiritual rebirth. Kingdoms conquer from the outside in, but this kingdom is different because it conquers from the inside out. New life. New title. I'm no longer Carlos Rodriguez, enemy of God. I'm Carlos Rodriguez, son of God. The one who has eternal life. This message as it goes out, the effects that are occurring continue to reverberate. The scriptures tell us that 
creation is longing for redemption, that it's groaning, if you will, in a sense. You ever watch the movies when the bad guys are in charge and everything's screwed up? You know, they have new people now in cinema. They're called colorists. Anybody know what a colorist is? Their job is simply because of computers now, they can control how the scene looks simply by coloring the look. And it's quite simple. When you watch the bad guys, the colors are different. When you see the good guys, the colors are brighter and lighter. During Jesus' time, the messenger and the message were one. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. All other religions are based on being saved by the advice of the founder. But Jesus says, the way you are saved is by the founder. The messenger and the message were one. But with this process, Jesus separated himself physically from the message and spiritually placed himself into the message. See, now there's no need for signs and wonders because the power is in the message itself. Jesus somehow took himself through the Holy Spirit and embedded himself in the message. Does not Hebrews say that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword? It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Word of God is depicted as a sword that comes forth from God's mouth. It's a living word. And what that means is the book that I hold in my hand not only has the message, but the messenger embedded in it. Jesus Christ. And as I bring the message as the messenger, it comes forth. There's a lot of talk in the world about reformation, changing policy. What can we do on Capitol Hill? to fix the problems in our schools? What can we do with our social engineering to fix the problems with parents and children? But the reality is we must be remade. And the only way to be that to happen is for the message to go from there to here. We were made for the message and we are being remade by the message. I don't know if you read that book, uh, Ink Spell. Anybody read Ink Spell? Cornelia Funk. Now that's a cool name. I'd read the book just for the name of the author, Cornelia Funk. You know, you guys are very still today. I don't know if my shtick is really bringing a game, but nonetheless, just smile and let's continue on. In the, in the book Ink Spell... The person would write and the words would come to life. I recently um, heard about a friend that I knew very cursorily. His name is Steve Grulick. Steve Grulick was at Trinity Church where I used to be. And he passed away recently. And, um, and we, got a, we got a text from Bethany Bloomdahl, who's a friend of ours. He said, I want you to know that Steve has passed away. And he shared about his testimony about how you were so instrumental in leading him to faith. 
Truth be told, I'm scratching my head going, I can't exactly remember what he's talking about. And I finally understood what it was. Do you know what I did so that Steve came to faith? His entire life was changed. His relationships. He went to work for the church. Powerful life. Engaging multiple hundreds of people. Hearing the gospel. I only did one thing. I invited him to church in the library. I don't even remember doing that. How responsible am I for his conversion? On a practical sense, zero. But in the spiritual sense, I was simply being a messenger without even thinking about it. And with just a couple of words, God used that to reorient his entire life and his entire destiny. The message has gone out. The messenger has gone out. And God calls us Christian who he has remade. And we sure look hideous on the outside. But God has the power to take things that appear broken and make them beautiful. You were made for the message. Have you received it? You've been remade in the image. Christian, do you recognize it? So go. Go and proclaim the message. It's not going to make any difference. You're absolutely wrong. Made the difference in my life. Make the difference in someone else's. Which brings me to my final point I want to talk about. And it's the manner in which Jesus sent them out. I find this very interesting. He said, go and take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Don't even have two tunics. Tunics are shirts, by the way. He literally says, just go with the shirt on your back. Oh, and by the way, wherever you go, I will go ahead of you. And so there will be a place. And if there isn't, keep going until I give you one. And when you get there, stay there. And I will provide for you. Why is Jesus providing these rules and regulations? He simply wants to communicate that the message is enough. Because the message and the messenger are in one. We don't need fancy words. We don't need fancy dress. It's not why I'm wearing this. We don't need big programs and big screens and big plans. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation for those who believe. And so that is the reason why I have every confidence that Sheba is going to be taken for the gospel with two 30-somethings with four children that live in an apartment because the gospel cannot be stopped. But the gospel not only transforms, it reveals. The reality is the message is a message that will be spoken against. It's not designed to convert, but to reveal what is in people's hearts. And there are some people that will not receive this great news. That's up to God though, isn't it? He says, you go and proclaim. We are a proclaiming church. And I fear that we are so busy trying to have our acts together 
that we forget simply to just be used by God in the simple way that God uses us to transform the world. I do love hearing the stories as people come to me and share about a conversation they have here or there with someone. And they're frustrated sometimes because it seems that they don't want to hear. I say that's usually good news because it's the people that can't wait to hear and the people who really don't want to hear are the ones that God is working on the most. The ones that are apathetic, those are the ones that I worry about. Well, so what, Carlos? This has been great. Now I go out into the real world. Just really want you to remember two things. Number one, you were made to be a messenger. You're made to proclaim the one who made you. And so no matter what happens out there, as you go out in your life, in how, not just what you speak, but how you speak, how you live, at home and in your neighborhood, the way you are with the person at the gas station, the way you are, as you proclaim that message, you will find peace for you are doing what you were made for. And we were made for the message. And if you are a Christian, you have been remade in the message. So savor it. Enjoy it. Live in it. It is who makes you you. When you get together with one another, talk about it. Encourage one another in it. We are a church at the end of the day of one thing, the gospel. That Christ has come. And because of that, we are risen. Alleluia. These next several months, we're going to be doing some great things. This men's retreat is going to be fantastic. Babe and pig roast, come on. Water balloons, it's going to be fantastic. And we're going to talk about a man and his work. Where does Christianity fit in work? That's a great opportunity to invite someone. Be a messenger to someone. If it's cheesy, blame me. Okay? It's not going to be cheesy. Okay? Blame me. This Chiba thing, show up for it. God's going to work in a supernatural way. How is he going to do it? I don't know. How is it going to work? I don't have a clue. I just know that God is going to do something in it. Love one another in your dinners of eight. Tuesday night, women's Bible study. This stuff's exciting, you guys. I don't know what's going on with your job. I don't care what's going on with your job in the sense that you're made for more than your work. Perspectives class. I see Roger holding that. We'll talk about that at Chiba. So uh, uh, during the missions weekend. Okay, I'm getting way too excited. I better be quiet now and calm down so we can stop the AC from cranking here. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Lord, we thank you that the message came to us and that there is a message we are to proclaim. Lord, we were made for you and our hearts are restless uh, in anything else. So help us to dwell and bathe in the message that you have rebirthed us into and let us rejoice in the hope and the opportunity to proclaim you to an unbelieving world. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen.